This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806? And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. I'm not sure at 95 what light duties means. I would just be saying, sit tight, ma'am, and have a cup of tea and please get better. But a question mark hovers over Windsor Castle, Caro, regarding the source of this. I go, of course I don't care if you call me Caro, but I think Jeff Kennett's just been rude. I mean, he still does it, and he almost says it with inflection on the Caroline in a really sort of aggressive way. I love a communal dance, don't you? I'm grumpy about people who go every year to the Super Bowl in America and come back and think they need to fix the AFL Grand Final. We're not the Super Bowl. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, episode 206. I'm Corey Perkin, and I'm speaking down the wires this week to dear friend Caroline Wilson, who is in Yamba on the northern New South Wales coast. Very nice of you to put Hi, your Corey. nice of you to put your mai tai and your sun hat to one side to join us this morning, Caro. How is it up at Yamba? No mai tais. Plenty of sun hats. Plenty of sunshine. It's beautiful here, and you know we both love a beach holiday. I just thought it would be really nice to recharge the batteries after everything that's gone on for a week before getting back into footy and everything that's I'm sure going to happen from next week or the week after. So. Here on a little family holiday, Corrie, which has been absolutely beautiful. Love The weather has been superb. Um, as we've said before, Yamba is like a beautiful New South Wales, northern New South Wales country town, except it's by the sea. It's stunning. So going right. well. What's Lovely. in your life? Well, uh, first of all, Caro, I will say um, hello to all our potties and thank our sponsors, Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row, and also to Prince Wine Store, bringing you the greatest wines in the world. And everybody, I know that you're doing this, visiting princewinestore.com.au because the team at Prince have been telling us that you've been visiting. So thank you, messengers far and wide for doing that. Um, Caro, we're going to be joined this week. Miles is still um, on his annual leave, but uh, Alex from Prince Wine Store will be joining us today to talk about the secrets of Cremont. We will be discussing, you and I will be discussing the British royal, uh, the British royal family um, news over the weekend, of course, that the Queen has contracted uh, the coronavirus, so we'll be talking about that. Um, you have another William Boyd novel that you're itching to discuss you also have been to the movies, and I have uh, a recipe, which I, th- I, I think um, I'm pretty sure I didn't mention this a couple of weeks ago. If I did, I apologise. I certainly haven't given the recipe. This is another one from the new Donna Hay book, Caro, so I know you'll be taking notes because we love Donna Hay. Now, um, we do. first we of all, do. I have to say that uh, in your absence, while the cat's away, the mice will play. Jane has brought in the most magnificent bouquet of mostly David Austin roses from her new, newish garden, not so new now, and bad luck, I get to take them home today. <laughs> Very envious. Up here, it's all um, hibiscus and bougainvillea and mandevillea, I must say, that sort of subtropical climate is pretty beautiful, isn't it? And, the and colour, um, the even colours. the geraniums look absolutely beautiful here. The colours are stunning. But I'm very envious of the David Austins, and I'm happy to hear 
Jane's garden is flourishing. I should also mention, Corrie, since we last spoke, the um, Melbourne Press Club have um, decided to withdraw their decision to take away Sam McClure's Quill Award from last year. I know we've talked about this ad nauseum and for people who aren't across the story, it's probably a little bit dull, but it was a big issue last week and the Herald Sun made an absolute meal out of the story and inaccurately reported some of it. But anyway, the point is um, this has now been deferred to another authority, an independent authority, who are going to look at this whole question of removing awards after legal settlements or acknowledgements are made and um, in the view that it, A, sets a dangerous precedent that maybe all the correct procedures weren't followed, etc. So very happy for Sam. I think that's a great decision. Well, I think and it's a really a, it's smart a, decision by the Press Club. It's a it's a really interesting broader issue, Caro. I think what happens with um, retrospectively when we look at work pieces of work which we hailed at the time as being significant, groundbreaking, just great reads, whatever the premise for them winning awards. Uh, the Sam McClure episode, which um, we'll, we'll stay tuned with as things unfold at the Melbourne Press Club. But it does make you think of um, award-winning journalists over the years, such as Louise Milligan's coverage of um, Cardinal George Pell's, uh, the, the cases of abuse um, allegedly um, that occurred under his watch um, within the Catholic Church and her incredible reporting on the ABC. Uh, does that mean that she has to give back all of her awards because a, a Supreme Court found that he was not guilty? It's a really interesting and perplexing issue and um, we will uh, continue to talk about that in our media chats. We've had some lovely correspondence from our potties. Thank you, everybody, so much. We love getting getting your letters and um, we, I'm sorry we don't get to read them all out, um, but we do, Caro, Jane and I do read them certainly, each one individually. This one from Pauline Arnell via email. She said, just listened to the latest podcast and thoroughly enjoyed it as usual. Thought it interesting, though, that there was high praise for PMs Howard and Turnbull when they voiced their appreciation for the support offered in decision-making by Jeanette and Lucy. But when PM Morrison spoke of his conversation with wife Jenny, read the Brittany Higgins interview, there was an uproar. And I stand to be corrected, but I think, Carol and Corrie, you may have been very much in support of the outrage. Um, Pauline goes on to say she's not much of a ScoMo fan, but she does remember thinking at the time that this was a man who had deep respect for his fa- his wife's thoughts and opinions. Now we don't um, we agree with you, Pauline. Uh, it's terrific uh, that ScoMo that Scott Morrison has deep respect for Jenny's thoughts and opinions. But I think in, I think Caro and myself and other observers perhaps they're a little more intense in their criticism than Caro and I were at the time. But Scott Morrison's uh, conversations with his wife, Jenny, about the Brittany Higgins issue, Caro, was a bit irksome at the time, we felt, because we wanted him to actually respond on behalf of his own uh, feelings and responses uh, rather than deferring to Jenny what Jenny felt was the right thing. No, well, it was also, Corrie, but also he talked about the fact that, you know, almost like because I love my daughters and I love my wife, I understand women and that was what was so condescending. It, it was, it was like the day he, you know, said in Parliament that in, in other countries there'd be there'd be guns when there were demonstrations. I mean, the overstatement or the misreading of the issue is the problem. It's not the deferring to the wife, which is absolutely fine to defer to your partner on anything, but it was almost saying that 
because I talk to my wife, I'm a, I'm a feminist and I understand these dreadful issues. I, I thought it was the wrong tone altogether. Caro, also remember last week we talked about if a piece of artwork is created by somebody who is later outed as a total creep, how do we feel about the artwork? <laughs> We've had a lot of emails and uh, texts and so on. Thank you, everybody, for your comments. Uh, Bron via email says, uh, read the discussion and enjoying and enjoying the art of the cancelled. If you watch the four-part doco, Alan v. Farrow, so this is the one on Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, mm-hmm. uh, about the alleged abuse by Alan of his then seven-year-old daughter, Dylan. I'm pretty sure you won't be so comfortable watching any more Woody Allen films. He is now a hard no for me. And Anita Morris had a, um, a rather interesting, um, lovely anecdote about um, being at a wedding when Michael Jackson's Thriller was played. And she did have this, Anita said, she did have this, is this really playing moment. The playlist seemed to be put together by a friend of the couple rather than the DJ. And that got her thinking about all the songs that made people rush onto the dance floor, Nutbush, Macarena, YMCA, Grease, Lightning. <laughs> And she said in this in series two of Dairy Girls Netflix, we're going a bit off topic, but I'm loving this. Anita says there is an episode that features a wedding reception. The series is set in the early 1990s and when Don't Rock the Boat by Hughes Corporation is played, young and all, old rush onto the dance floor to do the most bizarre communal dance I've ever seen. Uh, look, I just have to um, I just have to say I love a communal dance. Our family, the Perkin family, have a communal dance that our parents taught us back in the 60s and we now do it at most family functions, much to the extraordinary embarrassment of the Gen 3s, although a few of them are now joining in as well, I have to say. I love a communal dance, don't you? I do. It's, it is so off topic, it's very funny, but um, there's one... The movie I'm going to review this week. There is a scene. There is a scene like that involving a communal dance, at actually at a funeral, at a at a wake, and it is an absolute classic. She makes a very good point. Very good point. And I think reckon that cancel culture. I know it's the buzz, the buzz term at the moment, but it is really interesting because, as we said last week, you know, brilliant artists from the 1600s did some dreadful things, but we still go and see their exhibitions. It's in, in today's context, that it becomes very disturbing. Yeah, and I just uh, refer people to, if they didn't see it, James Button wrote a most excellent series in The Age in the Good Weekend magazine and the Sydney Morning Herald uh, a month or two ago. I can't remember. Summer is a blur. But um, it was, uh, maybe it was at the end of last year, but a terrific um, series on cancel culture. Has it gone too far? Caro, you're sitting there in your um, lovely deck chair in Yamba chatting to us. And it got me thinking about beach holidays. What um, I love a beach holiday, as you know, I love a beach holiday, and it's been a while since I have been on one. So I'm looking forward to uh, breaking out over the borders or doing interesting things this year. But going back to Yamba for you, what is it that has reminded you that you we love so much about beach holidays? Oh, look, it's the first uh, swim in the morning. It's the early morning swim, and I know that you and I are lucky enough to live fairly close to the sea, but I just don't do it at home. And I suppose it's warmer here. It is. I adore the waters of the Mornington Peninsula, as you know, and I don't mind cold water, but it's really nice to swim in the water of New South Wales. And having a swim first thing in the morning followed by a coffee is just one of the most fantastic ways to start the day. The other thing I don't do as often 
as I could, certainly not so much this year, is just sit on the beach and read my book. And I've been doing that here, which is another thing I absolutely love about a beach holiday. I think my third thing is that absolutely, is there no nicer feeling than coming home from a beautiful afternoon on the beach or morning on the beach, whatever, having a shower and sitting down to a nice cup of tea. It is just the best, A cup. it tastes even better than the first cup of tea in the morning. On a hot day, it is just one of my favourite things. So there's a few, and sort of spending the day in wet bathers and not really worrying, I just love it. What about you? Well, I'm with you, absolutely. In fact, I think you might have nicked that from me, or I think we've talked about it, certainly, the afternoon, come home from the beach, jump under the shower, put the kettle on. And if it is December, January, there might be a bit of leftover Christmas cake. As my friend Paul Newton always says, that first Christmas cake when you come off the beach, it's always um, it's always a lovely part of the afternoon. You feel scrubbed, washed down, and your skin is glowing, even though you've probably been under an umbrella and taking care. Um, I love um, also, Caro, the reading on the beach or reading on any holiday, even if you're even if you're on a plane going to Europe is pretty fun having that time to read. But there is something about lolling around under an umbrella or under a fan that's whirring and you fall asleep and you wake up and you read a couple more chapters, fall asleep. I also love um, beach holidays if you do go to New South Wales or Queensland. As you know, we're real fans of Byron Bay and we will have dinner at 6 or 6.30, like complete nursery tea. And to be in bed by 8 p.m., reading a couple of chapters, falling asleep and then waking up at 5 or 6 a.m., there's just nothing like it. You feel, feel, I don't know, I feel like I'm kind of cheating the system a bit in a lovely way by going to bed and and getting a good night's sleep. (laughs) I must say, I've slept like a log and we would have been in bed. We went to a very funny sort of establishment. I had a really nice classic pub dinner at a place called The Tavern last night on the river just out of Yamba Central. And um, we would have been in bed by eight, but we came home and played cards instead. And guess what? I won. So that that, was fun. (laughs) Well, that's pretty fun. Hey, you're on a roll because you've been doing quite well at Scrabble too. Caro, on to more serious matters. Over the weekend, Buckingham Palace released the news that the Queen had tested positive to COVID-19. The 95-year-old monarch is said to be experiencing mild cold-like symptoms and she does expect to continue carrying out light duties. She has been triple vaxxed. I'm not sure at 95 what light duties means. I would just be saying sit tight, ma'am, and have a cup of tea and please get better. But um, the red boxes are still arriving from Downing Street, as we understand. They're still being delivered. She's still working her way through those each day. But a question mark hovers over Windsor Castle, Caro, regarding the source of this. And it's something a bit like a Shakespearean drama, really, because Charles, the heir apparent, visited her last week and then tested positive for COVID. Camilla, um, the Duchess of Cornwall, is isolating. She has also tested COVID. Both the Waleses have had COVID. Um, if, I think in 2020 they both tested positive. Um, yeah, Charles has had it twice now. He has, He's yeah, that's right. And maybe given it to his mother. I think who gives you COVID now is such a minor issue. I mean, there's no point conducting a witch hunt after it's happened. It's it's unfortunate, but it's done. In the words of Anna from the op shop, she's had a crook February, hasn't she? I mean, <laughs> Prince Andrew settled. Prince Andrew's had, had, had to settle that highly disgraceful 
um, legal case. He's obviously been too gutless and been told he shouldn't go to court. Um, Charles himself is caught up in a cash for honours drama with one of his charities and and one of the Saudis. And um, and obviously now the Queen, didn't she say the other day to a couple of um, military types, I just can't move. She's on a walking <laughs> yes. stick, obviously, which we haven't seen her have for a while. And I'm just really sorry that in this this such historic year for her that it seems like it's all going to be about her health and her survival and the future of the monarchy. Um, hopefully she can come good, as they say, and actually attend most of these celebrations, try not to do too much because it should be a celebration. It, it is an astonishing achievement. And, you know, even there are very few anti-royalists who loathe the Queen, are there? Oh, look, I agree. And it's impossible for people of yours and my age and younger, even your mum, Julia, um, who's younger than the Queen, but it's impossible for us to think of a Britain without Queen Elizabeth at the helm. It's it, uh, She's the only monarch we've known and she's just been this remarkable figure in our lives. Dormant, most of it, but we've always been aware of her. We've always acknowledged her and in our parliamentary process as it exists currently in Australia, she's the head of state. So it's, it is a little close to home. But, you know, as I was reading this on the weekend, Carol, all I could think of was the personal here, the personal story. This is another family in crisis, a family who has an ageing relative who has been struck down with the virus. And of course, like all families, they must be so terribly worried. Millions of people around the world have gone through this, watching their loved ones in their 80s and 90s try to get through this, fearful of um, not being able to be with them. Um, obviously, lockdowns had a lot to do with that. We've had aged care crises, particularly here in Australia, elderly folk not being able to see their loved ones because they're isolating or indeed might have the coronavirus. Funerals, numbers have been limited. I, I mean, I go straight back to the, almost this time last year when the Duke of Edinburgh died and that, that image we will never forget. It's seared on our brands of the Queen sitting all alone without even one family member to comfort her all alone in the pews of the chapel as the service took place with a mask on. Um, I, I just thought of the personal, I just thought of the family, really, first off. Speaking of family, there's also the issue of Harry and Meghan over in the US still um, bluing on about their security issues, which is creating all sorts of problems. I know that's just another segue, but the, the problem is whenever you hear that she's just suffering from mild symptoms or anything when you do to do with royal health, mild symptoms, carrying on with light duties, you, you're just not always sure you're getting the full story. Absolutely right. And apparently uh, a number of staff members at Windsor Castle have tested positive. So it is uh, it is rife through there and we don't know to what extent um, and how, it, it and how affected. And how six years. I yeah, mean, remember, remember years, after yeah. the car accident on August 31, you know, back in the 90s, and it was reported, as my sister reminded me, it's a, an hour we were told that Diana had a broken arm. Exactly and the right. shock when you realise, yeah, it, it's... It is. It, it will be a very different world when she goes. I don't care what anyone says. It for a lot of people, and certainly for Australia, because I'm certain the Republican debate will kick off again, as you, as you've said many times. Yeah. Look, I'm I'm absolutely sure of that. And in fact, in January, Carol, I don't know whether you noticed, but the Australian Republic movement uh, 
released a preferred model of what the Republic might look like. As we know, in the 90s, when this was a referendum, there was so much debate internally within the Australian Republic movement, they couldn't settle on a model that they thought was appropriate. So they have apparently settled on what it might look like. We can talk about that at a later date, but it will be interesting, I think. And we may even find that the um, Constitution, of course, will have to be rewritten in parts and the Uluru Statement from the Heart might, which resonates so significantly with so many Australians, it might be included. That would be a good thing. Caro, we're going on to our newish segment now with The Harps Are Ready. Dear Caro and Corrie. Now, everybody, thank you for your emails. Please keep them coming. We've had quite a few, but we want more. We're just so greedy to solve people's problems. Can't tell you how much we love putting our nose into people's business and coming up with with a solution that may or may not work. But if you have a modern dilemma of any sort, a relationship issue, uh, or just a social quandary that you might have found yourself in, contact us at feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Caro, would you like to read out this week's dilemma? I love this dilemma and it is close to my heart. Hi, Carol and Corrie. I thought of something to discuss in your new segment of Funny Dilemmas. Should you correct someone when they get your name wrong or should you let it slide? I have this dilemma as my real name is Amanda and I don't like it. I'm a Mandy. Some people still call me Amanda. So should I correct them or do I seem pedantic? Thanks, Mandy. Oh, Mandy. Oh, Mandy. Oh, Mandy. La, 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 la. Caro. You came and you gave without thinking. You would often Um, be called Carolyn. And, look, this is, I think, Mandy, in the case of close friends or, you know, people you see all the time, although if they're close friends, they should know to call you Mandy, of course you correct them. And I, I think it's absolutely fair enough. In a work situation... I think you have to let it slide, and it happens to me all the time. I get Carolyn all the time. Wayne Jackson, who was CEO of the AFL for a long time, called me Carolyn for every year that he was in office. Jeff Kennett still calls me Carolyn. I suspect sure those two gentlemen are doing Yeah, I'm sure those two are doing it just to um, give you the yips. The first ever episode of Footy Classified that I ever did when Wayne Carey was um, on the panel, and it was a bit of a hostile opening, He called me Carolyn and I corrected him. And people were like, how precious, how ridiculous. But Carolyn is spelt differently. And I know Carolyns who loathe being called Caroline and I completely understand that. Um, We have very good friends who uh, their real name is Sally. Um, There's another and there's Deborah. Um, Deborah likes Deb or Deborah hates Debbie, which she got as a teenager. Sal, both Sallys I know really well want to be Sal and that is absolutely fair enough and all of them at some point in our friendship have told me that and I was very happy to be corrected Mandy so I think for friends you really need to but as I say there are times in a work situation when it's probably best to let it slide. If, what about Corey if you're at a cocktail party or something? And someone gets it wrong. I think you, people think you're being hostile, but I don't think you are. Well, when you have a name like Corey, nobody understands it because it actually is an international name. <laughs> so they've got so you know, many a cocktail party I've gone through the whole night as Chloe, um, which Carrie, you know, yeah, which all of that stuff. More, more, more the Chloe. Although there was that uh, irate uh, 
reader of the age back in the day when I wrote a really <laughs> terrifying report, a footy, footy report about Collingwood and said some unpleasant things. And they rang up and my colleague, Jeff Slattery, picked up the phone and they said, is that Corny Parsons there? Well, I'm not corny and I'm not Parsons, but look, hey, you know, two out of two. You still get um, corny from a lot of people as a result. I do because it was an anecdote that lives on. But uh, Mandy, in relation to your, um, I did a bit of research. I know that's unusual for me, but I did a bit of research for this segment, Caro, and I found myself on a on an etiquette website called Candace Smith. And Candace says, your name is the first gift you are given and should be res- respected as such. And Candace says that we should be upfront immediately if the person has called you the wrong name or mispronounced it. And it's the same, she says, with a shortening of a name. So if you want to be Caro and not Caroline, you should make it very clear to people that that's your name and you should never feel embarrassed about it. I um, There is a very good reason why in the coffee shops of my hometown, I am known as Max. Not only is it my husband's middle name and it's easy to say, and also, dare I say, this, the name of my grand, grandson, but you can't muck up Max Caro. But Corrie is every single time I leave dry cleaning or order a coffee or what's the name? I just think, oh, you know, I just can't be bothered spelling it again. It's not that hard. Yep. Brendan, Brendan always does Don when he orders a coffee or has to do a name of a, a booking or something. But, but, but Brendan's not that difficult to get your head around. You'd be surprised. It's just easier. It's just easier. And I like it when also, Mandy, if people say, do you mind if I call you Caro? And I, I don't like it. I mean, I'm absolutely – I go, of course I don't care if you call me Caro, but I think Jeff Kennett's just being rude. I mean, he still does it. And he, and he almost says it with inflection on the Caroline in a really sort of <laughs> aggressive way. So, Mandy, I don't think you let it slide. As Corrie said, it is a gift and you have to, I think – um, really stick to that, and particularly with friends, because it's just going to get irritating. And the longer you leave it, the harder it gets to correct them. Well, that's absolutely true too. There you go. And don't forget, everyone, if you have a modern dilemma that you would like Carol and I to solve or just chip in with a bit of um, worthless advice, just contact us, feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Caro, off we go to the cocktail cabinet. And it's that time of the week again, everyone. Jane has the cocktail cabinet out, as you can hear, and we are joined today by Alex Wilcox from Prince Wine Store. Hi, Alex. Good morning. Thank you very much for coming in in Miles's place. We have no idea where Miles has gone. Well, Miles, Miles, <laughs> and uh, two of the other guys from Prince Wine Store have headed overseas, which is you know the first time we've been able to get out for a couple of years. So. They're currently in Champagne today. They've uh, arrived in Paris on Saturday and they're in Champagne for a quick visit to some of our producers and then they'll be heading on to Burgundy and then further into Italy over the next two and a half weeks. So, Oh, wow. Do you have do you have workplace envy here, Alex? I'll have my chance to go a bit later on, but uh, it's very important for us to be able to have this direct contact with those producers that we represent here well, in Australia. Carol, I don't know when was the last time you visited the Prince Wine Store uh, shop, or it's, it's more than a shop, it's a huge premise in South Melbourne, a wonderful place. But when I was there a couple of weeks ago with uh, a winemaking friend of mine, Carrillo, we were looking at the different and diverse uh, international wineries that you represent there, uh, that you, um, wineries you don't see in other grog shops, and Carrillo being the expert, me just being um, the, the 
companion, <laughs> the lame taster. But um, he he was um, he was pointing out what an extraordinary range, particularly Italian wine and French wine, that you have there. Yeah, so it's certainly one of our points of difference. I mean, we we love selling and talking about the great wines of Australia as well, and uh, we have a huge range of local things. But we really like to try and find wines that represent a sense of place, where they come from. So we're looking for examples that use traditional grape varieties and winemaking methods to really showcase where they come from. And, and they're different. You know, they, they, we, when we set up Prince Wine Store, we really wanted to have a space that was big enough and able to showcase the world of wine. Australia is an important part of that, but also in the same way that, you know, Champagne is unique and the wines from Northern Italy, the Barolo area are unique to that area. And Whilst we do good examples of those styles here in Australia, we like to also show the, the wines from where they come from. You're going to take us to Burgundy today, and I'm very excited. It's a sparkling wine, but one that's been living in the shadow of the beautiful Champagne. That's right. So we're talking today about Cremant de Bourgogne. So Cremant is the French word for sparkling wine that comes from the regions outside of Champagne. So we all familiar with Champagne. It's a very famous wine style and it's limited to the Champagne area, which is not too far from Paris. And so today we're a little bit further afield in Burgundy and Burgundy is quite a large region. So it's an area of about 80 kilometres north to south and we're talking primarily about the Cote d'Or and the Cote de Chalonnais. And this particular producer, Picamolo, is based in the Cote de Chalonnais in a small town called Rui. Rui has uh, for a long time had a uh, you know centuries of winemaking prowess and but has really in the sparkling world perhaps played second fiddle to the success of champagne and the thing that we're most excited about Picamolo is that it has all the characteristics of great sparkling wine it's made from similar grape variety or the same grape varieties as champagne in in Pinot and Chardonnay and has the same in bottle secondary fermentation. So it has all the the characteristics of champagne, except slightly different and and very well priced. Champagne, the last two years has been getting quite hard to get and prices keep rising. And uh, we saw a good opportunity to bring in an alternative sparkling from this area, Cremont de Bourgogne. So Cremont, you can get from all around France, but really the most famous area for Cremont or the, the more premium area is Cremont de Bourgogne, and this is one of the new stars on the block. So you have for us today the Le Terroir and the Le Terroir Rosé. Tell us about those two and, and what sort of um, price they are um, if our messengers jump on board to princewinestore.com.au. Yeah, so we've got two, a, a, a white one, the Blanc, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blend of Chardonnay and Pinot. Um, it's a very, it's got a beautiful sort of crisp, fresh acidity in the same way that you have great energy in champagne. This also has that underlying finesse and energy and a very fine bead and is a really good aperitif style champagne. So by that, it sort of makes you thirsty. It's something you have at the beginning of a meal, serve it chilled. It can go, of course, by itself, but would be a really good match with some oysters or some light fish or things like that. I love the way you say it makes you thirsty. In other words, you have five glasses. That's right. (laughs) And then the rosé section has been absolutely booming in Australia for dry rosé. And this is a dry, sparkling rosé made from 100% Pinot Noir. Um, from the area of the Cote de Chalonnais. It's old vine Pinot, and it's got a very pale pink 
colour. It's a beautiful dry rosé, but being Pinot, it has a little bit more fruitiness and roundness and richness. And of course, that plays with perhaps a slightly more richer style of food. So, you know, thinking some salmon or some grilled vegetables or grilled lighter meats and things like that. So it's a it's a more food friendly wine. And the great thing with both of these is they're really good value. So on the shelf, normally they're, you know, $45. We're going to be doing a special this week where we're bringing it down to $38 um, on, on the on the website. And so it's a sort of thing that, you know, it's about half the price of your typical bottle of champagne. And yet you've got equivalent, they're different, but equivalent sort of quality parameters to, to champagne and something that you can enjoy whenever you feel like some bubbles. Well, I think we should have a um, a bubbles playoff, Caro, don't you? I think we should have a wine tasting or a champagne tasting and line up a couple from bubble the champagne off. region. Yeah, a bubble off and then have the Cremant, particularly these ones from the uh, the Picamalo. Picamalo. Yeah, for our winery. Uh, I think that would be just a f- fascinating, almost like a blind tasting and we can... Or is it quite obvious the difference in the bead and the difference oh, in the taste? Well, look, I think I think there's definitely a difference. The the main thing being that champagne, what sets champagne apart from the rest of the world in sparkling wine, is really the soil that it's grown on. It's almost pure chalk. Um, some parts of champagne have a small bit of soil on top of the chalk, but this high level of chalk really gives champagne a core and a power that is hard to match. So whilst I think you would see a difference between the Cremant de Bourgogne champagne and perhaps a New World sparkling, say a good one from Tasmania, um, I think you would find them all very pleasurable but slightly different. Now, whether or not you notice that champagne characteristic as being champagne would uh, would be interesting to see. There's a challenge, Carol. I think we should somehow fit that into our busy schedule. Alex, it's great to meet you. Thank you for coming in and thank you for this wonderful offer. To our listeners, if you just jump on to princewinestore.com.au, use the promo code MEWS as you are checking out online. That's how you'll receive the listener discount. Don't forget, it's the Louis Picamolo Cremant. There's the uh, Blanc and there's the Rosé, normally $45 for you. Special deal, $38. Um, That is just remarkable. I don't know how you can afford to send all your staff away, Alex, when you're giving us such discounts as that. (laughs) Oh, well, it's a very important part of what we do and one of the key points that makes us um, be able to inform our customers. So it's really important that we share the knowledge around and, and, uh, and, uh, and try and encourage people to to step in and and, uh, help us find the next new thing. And hopefully, it's not actually confirmed that we can do it yet, but hopefully either next week or the week after, you'll have an opportunity to talk to Miles on the ground there uh, perhaps from facts from Northern Italy next week, and he can he can uh, perhaps fill in the listeners a little bit what it's like travelling at the moment, which not many of us have had an opportunity to do. But uh, I think they're having a good time, and even though the weather's a bit cool, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they're going. I don't feel sorry for them at all on the weather front, can I tell you? <laughs> uh, Alex, thank you very much for coming in. Alex Wilcox from Prince Wine Store. BSF now, books screen and food, and you've done uh, the bulk of the work here. You have another William Boyd novel that you would like to discuss with us. This is an oldie but a goodie. And I think a bestie. I think it's the best one I've read, and I I gather that Any Human Heart, which um, is one of 
William Boyd's earlier novels, I think I think written in the early eighties, um, is his most popular. It was um, televised um, on I think Channel Four or the BBC in England about maybe 10, 12 years ago, and it was quite successful. It was a four-part series. This is a wonderful chronicle, Corrie, of the 20th century, not unlike The Magician in some ways, in that well, The Magician was a story of a real person. This is a story of Logan Mount Stewart, born in South America, um, moved to London early in his childhood by his English father and South American mother, boarding school in England, a life lived in Paris, New York, other parts of France, the French countryside. Oh, look, Africa, which is where William Boyd himself was born. This is a wonderful, wonderful novel, a novel, as I said, of the 20th century, written, it's basically the diaries of Logan Mount Stewart, and sometimes they're intermittent. They're interspersed with... um, some background about what happened in between the time that Logan abandons those diaries. The Duke and Duchess of Windsor play a big part, the original Duke and Duchess of Windsor from the early 1900s. David, who of course abdicated to marry the woman he loved. Um, Ernest Hemingway, Picasso, all these incredible characters. A lot of American artists, because for a while he runs a gallery in New York for an old school friend. This is a just a wonderful, wonderful story. And Any Human Heart is basically the title signifies um, what any sort of, any human heart is sort of the ordinary side of Logan Mount Stewart and the extraordinary side. His heart becomes very significant at the end of his days and earlier in his days. This man does some pretty ordinary things at times to his friends and he has two wives three wives, in fact, sorry, um, he under he suffers untold tragedies, absolutely terrible tragedies, and his life is simply fascinating. He's a writer, and I would urge you to read this book. I absolutely loved it. I felt very sad when I'd finished it, and I know we've raved about books like Trio and Waiting for Sunrise and Reckless, but this, I reckon, is his absolute best. I loved it. Well, I'll give. I'll definitely give that a go. You still haven't read yet the 2018 book, which I reviewed on the podcast, Love is Blind. Give that a crack as well. That covers the early part of the 20th century. That's I've, kind of also interesting. I've just started um, Brazzaville Beach, another one, which is um, certainly starts off in Africa. So I can highly recommend this book. And we brought it up at our book club meeting last week and a couple of other members just raved about it too. So if you can find this book, buy it and read it. And don't forget, you I've given you a little bit of homework there too with Jane Caro's new novel. Um, Jane is yes. a friend of the podcast and she has a, her first crime novel coming out in a couple of weeks and she'll actually be joining us on the podcast, I think, Miss Jane, on International Women's Day. Brilliant timing. Brilliant timing. No, I've got that here too. That will be read during my beach holiday, I promise you. Great. Now, um, you're on a roll. Please move on to screen and you have been to see Belfast. I've done Kenneth Branagh, Corrie, two weeks in a row. Um, Kenneth Branagh doesn't star in this film, but he it is entirely his concept. He directed it and it is a simply wonderful film. I know I'm raving about all my BSFs this week, or you're doing F, but... Um, I would highly recommend Belfast. It's um, labelled a comedy drama, probably a bit more drama, but certainly some very funny moments. It is really the story of Kenneth 
Brennan's childhood and Jude Hill, the child star, the child actor who plays the young character based on Kenneth Branagh is absolutely wonderful. As are Jamie Dornan, you know, from The Fool and Fifty Shades of Grey, who plays his father, and Katrina Balfe, who plays his mother, a beautiful, beautiful actress, actor. Um, we're in Belfast in the 1960s. The troubles are at their worst. Um, Catholics and Protestants are fighting in the street that um, the, young, the young boy, played by Jude Hill, is growing up in. Um, the grandparents are wonderfully, wonderfully portrayed by Karen Hines and Judy Dench. And this is just a masterclass of acting, a brilliant but low-key subtle story about what it was like to be a young boy growing up among the bombs, the religious battles, the political uprising. But it's also, as I said, a love letter to the city. And the film opens with this beautiful wide shot of Belfast set as it is among this sort of among the docks i suppose or the, the big shot and and um and the coast but also of this suburban street and all those scenes are done in black and white which is really interesting i i just think it's a great film it's not too long it's just over an hour and a half you laugh you cry and you really do cry and um the dilemma is really do they stay in belfast or do they go and live in england where um, Kenneth Branagh's father was going over every... He basically only came home once a fortnight. He's not a perfect character. He's not a hero. He um, gambles. He has money problems, but he's a wonderful father to his two young boys. And, oh, look, it's just a real coming-of-age story as well. Caro, this, has been, this um, has been nominated for on. Best Picture. Yep, very, very happy to see it um, in the company of all the other... I don't think it'll win, but I wouldn't mind if it won. It certainly should be there for the acting awards. And um, we talked about um, dance floor scenes. There is a beautiful scene at a wake where the parents, as I said, played by Jamie Dornan and Katrina Balfe, dance. And Jamie Dornan actually performs the Robert Knight hit from 1967, Everlasting Love. You will want that at the next wedding you plan, Corrie. I promise you. It just goes off. Can I so can I just say can I just part. say here now if I die before you can you please um, organise a group dance at my wake I would love you to do that thanks Caro um, Belfast of course is a beautiful city I was there in the early eighties for a week or two it was not long after uh, Bobby Sands had died of a hun hunger strike in the Mayor's prison and the place was pretty volatile. We visited pubs that a few years earlier had been bombed. Um, definitely Falls Road was scary at that time and um, the place was um, mild to heavy anxiety. But I found Belfast one of the most beautiful Victorian architecture um, cities, like Glasgow, I think, that I have visited. And um, the people, like, great crack, great crack. I love Belfast. I can't wait to see this film and that sounds like a, a ripper. Um, so that's Belfast um, on at a cinema near you, everyone. Quickly with my food this week, my recipe, it is from the new Donna Hay book, One Pan Perfect, Caro. I talked about this. Which new... has had rave reviews. Well, well, yes. And I think I said a couple of weeks ago when I had another recipe that um, daughter Francesca, who's cooked a lot more out of this, although I'm catching up with her, she's cooked a lot of recipes out of this. She says her declaration was, this is Donna's best book thus far. So that was an interesting call. Certainly for families such as 
uh, checkers and the team in Ballarat, when you've got kids and you're working and you're combining a busy lifestyle, this is all basically one tray, one bake cooking, Caro. And the recipe that I did a couple of weeks ago, it was just for dinner for the two of us, but it was just so delicious, the the, the sort of the combo of flavours. You um, put some potatoes, roasting potatoes and an onion and uh, in a bowl, cut them up and mix in the oil, salt and pepper and toss them. I think this is always a key to making good roast potatoes. Really make sure you toss them at the beginning in oil rather than drizzling oil on the top when they're already on the tray. And then you stick them on um, a, a, a tray that's lined with baking paper. You cook them for the first 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and then then you combine chicken, chorizo, paprika, oregano, maple syrup, which is a key here, and a little bit more oil on the top. Um, we use chicken fillets, thigh fillets. You can probably do chicken breasts, although they might dry out a bit more than that. I don't know. I haven't tried them. But um, toward the end of the bake, you put kale on the top so it really crisps up. I love um, crispy kale. It's my new favourite thing. And um, and then basically you, once it's, it's um, cooked through, uh, probably 25 minutes at that point. Um, just check the chicken that it's golden and um, cooked through. Uh, just pull it out of the oven and serve it. It was such a winner, Carol. I can't begin to um, tell you how great it was. The, the little crispy kale on the top was delicious and we just served it with some wilted spinach and it was um, yummo. So that is the chicken. Was the chicken, um, did you say chicken thigh? Yes, yeah. Absolutely the, the bone best. bone or boneless? Um, no, they were on the bone. So we just, yep, um, yeah, and, and it was, yeah, and because you just get that lovely extra little bit of moisture, chicken chorizo and potato tray bake, and we will have those on the show notes. And as I said, it's from Donna Hayes' new cookbook. Caro, I cannot imagine how you can be grumpy up in beautiful Yamba, but you apparently are. What are you grumpy about? I'm grumpy about people who go every year to the Super Bowl in America and come back and think they need to fix the AFL Grand Final. <laughs> I mean, talk about, you know, doing the rounds. You know, there's always a go-to story at a certain type of year. Usually um, it's the night grand final. We have to have a night grand final. Look at what they do at the Super Bowl. Look at the amazing acts. Look at what Eminem did, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're not the Super Bowl. We don't live in a country of the multi-multi-millions that America does. Yeah, we, we don't, don't, we don't need um, We don't need meatloaf, Andrew Demetrio. Our grand final is fine without being held at night. This year, though, um, Eddie Maguire is saying that we need to have a roof on the MCG. They're looking, as you know, they're doing a feasibility study of the Southern Stand, the Great Southern Stand. It does need serious repairs and it's going to cost millions of dollars. But I still believe, despite what Eddie says, that the MCG is fine without a roof. That is not the point of the MCG. We have a wonderful stadium at the other end of the town called Marvel Stadium, the other end of Melbourne, just have to take a tram or it's a short walk, and that has a roof for the events that need a roof. I think the MCG, it's very, very, look, obviously sometimes it rains in Melbourne, but I don't think it impinges much on the football. There are more games, I suppose, moved, those Friday night games during the depths of winter, the Marvel Stadium. I don't think you need it much for cricket. I know rain can be a bit of a hindrance, but I don't remember too many Boxing Day tests ruined by rain. I don't think a roof on the MCG would keep the MCG the way it was. So that is my grumpy this week, Corey. Can I just say, I know we're not allowed to say this anymore, Caro, but to footy crowds, man up. 
Like how many how many shocking weather days have we sat in the members or the outer somewhere and watched a game of footy? It doesn't it doesn't kill us. Oh, that gets me to another grumpy. You know, the loud music they play at the MCG at quarter time. You just want to talk about the game and there's this blaring noise. And the other, this sort of ongoing thing that oh, young people now don't have the concentration span to last during such a long half time, or we need to make half time longer, but the quarters need to be shorter because people get bored. Look, what sort of world, what sort of world are we creating? Most of I the young people really I've observed at the footy, they go off to the bar at quarter time and have a quick drink or go and go to the toilet. They're not sort of dancing in the in the aisles to the music, and they also want to have a chat about the game. I also I don't think the game goes for too long, but anyway, that's just my take on it, and that's why I'm grumpy. But Corey, I think now um, you're going to kick off some. Um, Six quick questions for Red Energy. For Red Energy, powered by the Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy, Caro, on 131806? Yes, so while we're on a bit of a footy theme there, Caro, my question to you is which AFL club has had the worst off-season? Well, I have to travel west to uh, make a decision here, Corrie. I would, I mean... There have been issues at several Victorian clubs. Obviously, Carlton has had an embarrassing backflip on a new executive, um, embarrassing for the new CEO, Brian Cook. And um, Collingwood has had Jordan Degoe. The, the list goes on. But West Coast, by a million miles, has won the AFL club with the worst off-season. Their best young forward, Oscar Allen, is in a moon boot. Their captain, Luke Shuey, is injured again. Jack Darling... Another great forward is refusing to be vaccinated, so he can't play. And they are the only AFLW club who didn't wear a Pride jumper when Pride round was held in January. And their reasoning was embarrassing, very, very badly explained. It was back to the arrogant old West Coast. And their AFLW coach made the unfortunate comment that the Pride thing has been done to death. And I'm not talking about it. I want to talk about the footy. They said they didn't have time to make a jumper or something. It was just ridiculous. So on and off the field, I'd have to say that Trevor Nisbet, who's been CEO of that club for a long time and was footy manager back when you were covering footy and has been there. Look, he's been there God, not, he's not, great not that long ago. <laughs> he's done a great job in many areas. He's had, he's had some black marks along the way, including the sort of drug saga of the early early to mid-2000s. But seriously, that, it's, it's just been an absolute shocker for them. Um, Corrie, which new series has you in a fizz of excitement? Gaslit. Have you heard about I've it? I've never heard of it. <gasps> no. I love it when I have something that you don't know about in the film world. Gaslit, uh, this, is, uh, this premieres on Stan... We've got a bit of a wait, Kaz, April 24, so just pop it in the diary and wait patiently. Gaslit is the new drama series about the Watergate scandal of the early 70s and focuses on Martha Mitchell, the celebrity socialite and outspoken wife of uh, Attorney General John Mitchell. This is the time of Richard Nixon and the demise of his administration. And guess who plays Martha? Meryl Streep. No, oh, too old. Try again. Don't say Nicole. Kira Knightley. No. Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts. Oh, Julia Roberts. Who I think oh, is, you. you know, she's had she's had lots of time off to have babies and things. Good on her. Terrific. She's now really picking and choosing her 
uh, her projects. This project, Carol, was originally put forward by Joel Edgerton, the Australian actor and director. He was going to play Gordon Liddy and direct it. Um, Army Hammer, who we discussed last week um, when we were talking about uh, people whose work we're now reviewing. Yeah, he was to play John Dean. He is no longer in the project either. Um, but we have a terrific cast and led by Julia. And interestingly, the shorts that I've seen, Sean Penn plays her husband, John Mitchell, hardly recognised him, Caro, hardly recognised him. It is just, it is such, they are just what I've seen, two incredibly profound performances, absolutely amazing. Matthew Crawley, who you know the downtown Abbey Matthew Crawley, who is in real life Dan Stevens, the actor. He is uh, playing John Dean, the Deputy Attorney General, who became White House Counsel and basically tipped the bucket on the uh, the um, Nixon administration's bugging of the Watergate Hotel during the Democrat um, uh, during the election in the Democrat headquarters at Watergate Hotel. I can't wait for this. You know me. I love a good American political drama, whether it's real life or fiction, at the best of times. And I just think the um, just what I've seen of Julia Roberts's performance is absolutely outstanding. So that's gaslit. I should correct you so you don't have to apologise next week. I think I heard you say Dan Stevens from Downtown Abbey. Oh, sorry. <laughs> downtown. <laughs> sorry, Downton. You can tell I never I never really watched Downton Abbey, but I, he was also most wonderful in Beauty and the Beast, can I just tell you. Now, Caro, are you suffering from February inertia and is it infectious and what is it? My sister sort of pointed this out to me again, my sister Amelia Moggs, who's um, in the amber with me, and I know exactly what she means. That sort of feeling that you're well into February and you still haven't done your diary, you still haven't filled in your birthday book, you still haven't haven't made all your medical appointments, you still haven't actually formulated a plan, Um, you maybe wanted to do Feb fast and haven't. You know, all those things that in January, you just completely ignore and think you'll get back onto, you know, because you're having a bit of a holiday and you're in summer mode and hangover from Christmas and New Year. And you get to mid-February and you still haven't really got organised. Organised um, um, maybe children's events, children's birthdays, grandchildren's events. It is just an issue that I actually must say I do suffer from in early February knowing that I'm getting back to work soon and I have to get organised and I do not want to. I resist that bloody diary. Come on, get on I've with it. I've shaken myself out of it but I'm, I am I have suffered from it. It's the second month of the year. Move it. Move it. Move it. Move it. Move it. Hey, um, on the diary issue, you'll be amused to note that having bought that one on special for nineteen ninety nine at Officeworks and I've given it away to um, somebody who needed a diary. I was then in Ballarat last week shopping for the five-year-old birthday party in a um, discount shop, I guess you'd call it, variety shop, and I found the perfect diary. It's an A4 shape. The whole week is open. There are much bigger spaces in which I can write my very busy appointments and things. So I actually spent Sunday moving, transferring all of the information from diary number one, which I've ditched, including the birthdays. I've done the whole lot. So I am so organised, it's scary. That is so funny because we had the same experience in the post office yesterday in Yamba and we saw a fabulous week to a page that you open up, double up, whole week is there. And I think my sister ended up buying I think Mog's ended up buying it. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Corrie. Now, oh, this wordle, what is the latest saga? 
Well, the latest the latest saga is Caro that since the New York Times takeover of Wordle, they did pay for it. I might add a lot of money to the inventor. Um, there is a theory, and I agree with it, that the words have become more difficult. There is global anxiety about this, Caro. Twitter, the Twitter sphere, <laughs> has gone crackers. And in fact, our friend and friend of the pod, Mike Sheehan, as I said last week, he and I and Jess Slattery have a Wordle WhatsApp group. I met him at the local coffee shop yesterday and he was saying, what's with the words? What's with tacit? Who comes up with tacit? That was a very difficult day. <laughs> the day they had ultra was very difficult. Ultra, because usually it's kind of ultra modern or ultra retro. You know, there's a hyphenated thing there. Who thinks of ultra as a word on its own? And then the Sounds other day... Like they eased you all in to fall in love with it and think you could do it and now they're making it difficult. Well, it's terrible. I've gone from row two and three now to sometimes I just beep out... They had Robin the other day, Robin as in Robin Redbreast. You know, here in Australia, we don't see a lot of Robins. We don't see a lot of Robins, except the girls that have that same name. I sympathise, but I don't really understand because I cannot get addicted to Wordle. Well, you but have to because it's very quick. You start your day, you do it in five to ten minutes or sometimes longer if you're having a bad day. Uh, the New York Times, of course, has denied the charges that Wordle, uh, they've changed Wordle since their acquisition. But just remember, Caro, 300,000 people were doing Wordle in January, 3 million in February. This is growing as fast as the coronavirus, let me tell you. Now, Caro, um, visiting an old friend, revisiting an old friend here with a GLT, what's your week's GLT? Again, you can see I'm spending a lot of time with my sister. I never knew these existed. Ultra 3, Ultra 3 is the name. They're shade-adjusting drops for your foundation or, or your moisture. Well, not your moisturiser, your tinted moisturiser, but I, more foundation. I don't wear foundation, so, so I don't care screen. about this. Well, everybody knows that when you go to a chemist or Mecca or any sort of chemist warehouse to buy your new um, foundation and you don't have your old foundation with you. You can't remember the colour. They do the colour trial on you. You buy it and it's too light or you buy it and it's too dark. Well, guess what? You can buy these adjusting drops to put put into your foundation. You don't look fascinated by this, Corrie. Can so, you tell I'm bored? I'm doing Wordle as I'm talking to you. <laughs> when you turn on, when, when you buy your foundation and you realise it's too dark, you can buy shaded dusting drops to put into your foundation and mix it up and shake it so it's the right colour. So you put it on and you look like you've got a suntan and it looks totally fake in the middle of winter. You can adjust your new foundation. You haven't wasted your money. If, on the other hand, you buy a foundation that's too pale and you put it on and you look pasty, no, you don't have to just give it to some pale friend or throw it out. You can actually put in darkening shaded adjusting drops. How good. Oh. They cost four ninety five. Great, okay. <laughs> and that well, and that was Caroline James, Wilson's beauty I, I hour. Miss, I hope Miss Jane's nodding in agreement. I'll send you a photo of them, and people, I think, will find that a great way of saving money. Now, Corrie, you have this week's amazing fact. I do, Caro. So, do you know what um, London Bridge Operation London Bridge is? Well, I do. Um, I know it's got something to do with the royal family. Yes. So I, I'll um, I'll tell you what it is. It is the code name for when the queen dies. Now, look, I, I hope this is a long way off, but I can't even say in the event that the queen dies because 
she will. She's the queen. She's pretty good, but she will die at some point. So there is a whole plan in place, Operation London Bridge. And the reason it's called Operation London Bridge, Carol, is it follows a tradition of uh, these sorts of plans with previous monarchs and members of the royal family when they died. And they use famous bridges in which to describe. Um, although King George VI, that was known as Operation Hyde Park Corner. Um, when Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, who lived to be over 100 years of age, uh, when they were getting ready for her, they used uh, another prominent bridge in the United Kingdom. Tay Bridge was hers, and the prin- Princess Diana's funeral was called Operation Tay Bridge. Uh, also, they used that one for her. Um, Operation Fourth Bridge. Didn't get her own bridge. No, she didn't. Own, no, she didn't. It was like it was like the Elton John song. She didn't get her own song. He just rewrote Marilyn. Oh, song. I know. She she anyway. was hardly done by Operation Fourth Bridge was Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Anyway, this plan is in place, and what is supposed to happen, Caro, is that the Queen's private secretary at this stage, it's Sir Edward Young, he will be the first to convey the news to the Prime Minister, who at this stage is Boris Johnson. And Boris will receive a call and Sir Edward Young will say the words, the London Bridge is down. And that phrase will resonate throughout the uh, various levels of the government and Why parliament. Why can't you just say the Queen is dead? I mean, it's not like we're spies. <laughs> in case, in case, uh, in case Vladimir Putin is listening, I don't know, Caro. History well, doesn't does relate. It if he knows? <laughs> Look, stick to the script. Stick to the script. Um, so if um, if Her Majesty dies at Windsor Castle, Balmoral or Sandringham, in other words, not in London at Buckingham Palace, the, her coffin will be put onto a train and it will be uh, it will travel to St Pancras Station with King Charles. So Prince Charles, now to be, of course, King Charles, will be in the train with her. And the royal family's website will change to a black holding page with a short statement confirming the Queen's death. BBC Two suspends its programming and reverts to BBC One. And BBC One have a whole protocol of how their programming will unfold on the day and the days after the Queen has died. At 6pm following the death of the Queen... King Charles will broadcast to the nation. I mean, I could go on and on and I won't because I just found it fascinating, that's, but that's um, a, we don't have no, you know, three I think, hours. I think it is too. And I, I do find it strange that they don't just say the Queen is dead. I, I did know that there was a plan in place and obviously, but why do you need to say London Bridge has fallen down? I don't quite understand that, but I'll take your word for it. Anyway, I found it interesting. And also I think what is interesting is that she will lie in state um, and the funeral will be at Westminster Abbey and then she will be uh, – then there will be a small service at that lovely St George's Chapel at Windsor where she will be uh, interred. Is that correct? Um, yep. But, Caro, there's 10 days between death and funeral. I can only imagine this is to organise things, but that does seem an awfully long time for poor Queen to just be sitting in the box waiting to travel over to the other side to Philip and her mum. And is that because it just takes so long to organise? A I'm not sure. Of that yeah, I don't know. Maybe they they want uh, as many days as possible for a lying in state. I'm not sure. My website research does not relate. But anyway, on that sort of sombre note, um, we wish the Queen all the best. We know she's listening. Um, well done, Mum. Just 
ma'am. I think you're supposed to say ma'am, aren't you, to the royal family? Um, we hope, yeah. we wish you all the best. And um, in the words of Boris Johnson, get well soon. Caro, have a lot of fun up in there, uh, up in Yamba. We miss you in the studio, but we hope you're having a lovely time. Keep reading. I'll, I will see you next week, Corrie, for the next episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And as you said, we are loving your modern and your ancient dilemmas. Please keep them coming. Yes, everyone. And thanks to our podcast sponsors, Red Energy, 100% Australian Electricity and Gas, and, of course, Prince Wine Store. Uh, you can follow us, our adventures, on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, and you can uh, actually correspond with us in those various guises too. And if you want to get our show notes delivered to your inbox each week, just hit the sign-up button on Facebook or send us an email and we will subscribe you. Don't forget, everyone, whether it's a modern dilemma or you want to join the show notes or just to say hello, it's feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Thank you, Miss Jane, and thank you for my beautiful bouquet. Bad luck, Caro, you miss out. And what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world.